We begin with Josie Dietrich, whose memoir, In Danger, was published by UQP earlier this year. By way of introduction, I'm going to take the unusual step, I don't think I've ever done this before, of reading the author note from the front of her book as a way of describing her, because honestly, I can't think of a better description. Josie Dietrich is an English immigrant from, to Australia. She lives in Brisbane in the home she and her partner built on passive house principles. After coming out of a long reign as a carer, she's worked as a research assistant for universities on projects to improve psychiatric discharge planning and women's wellness after cancer. Her prior long-term work was in the after-hours child protection unit, assessing children's risk of harm alongside the sexual offences and child abuse unit of Victoria Police. Mm -hmm. yep. To Heavy. remain sane during this period, she flitted off overseas for months at a time to climb cliff faces while sleeping on beaches or in abandoned shepherd's huts. After her cancer treatments finished and in the light of her experience caring for her dying mother, Josie joined the advisory committee of Can Speak Queensland as a cancer and consumer advocate. This memoir, mm. In Danger, is about her own journey. This is me now, not the <laughs> cover of a book. Is about her own journey through a diagnosis of breast cancer following on from the death of her mother from the same disease 14 years previously. It's not by any means a grim book. In fact, it's quite the opposite, probably or possibly because of Josie's familiarity with the illness and her lack of sentimentality towards mm. it. I'd ask you all, please, to welcome Josie to Melania. Thank you very much. <laughs> Climbing. Thank you. Yeah, I was a rock climber for 11 years, and I used to set the routes that people climbed on. I was the first female to do it in my 20s. And um, I was a climbing instructor as well, and I lived in Canada, and, but was based out of Victoria, Melbourne. Yeah. Okay, and you still do that? No, it's a funny question, though, because I did my first climb in 16 years, two weeks ago, out at Tippengargen. It's a four-pitch climb, and, yeah, I led two pitches of it, and I haven't done that. I haven't put climbing shoes on or felt what it's like to be on the rope again on what's called the pointy end when you're leading um, for 16 years, and it sort of all came back. It was amazing. Do you not have to do kind of a whole lot of exercise no. with your hands and things to strengthen your fingers <laughs> no, up? Cause, up? No, because climbing, climbing is called the UED system, so it's graded. So it starts at about a grade four, goes up to about a grade 34, 35 now, and this was like the lowest grade possible. So it was a very easy grade. It's, it wasn't challenging physically, um, so it was fine. It was more headspace getting back into getting on the rock. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and, and, but you do still bicycle and things like that? You were up here bicycling the other day. Yeah, yeah? so I'm, I've always been physically very active. I was a ballet girl um, up until about 13 and then took climbing. And then um, now I cycle. I'm a road cyclist. Yeah. Fantastic. I do personal training. So, look, as I said, this book is not a, a woe-is-me um, no, story. A you deal with your illness uh, and your journey through it very matter-of-factly. Mm. So... Where do you think this song, Sang Foi, comes from? Um, I guess the way I was raised, the only child, single mother, very strong mother, feminist, but with lots of cracks under the surface and great vulnerability. So I, I learned what it was to question the world through my mother, who was an academic in history, philosophy of science and single mum. And so I learned sort of how to operate as a, a girl with some fire in the belly and as a growing woman. But I also learned what it was like to be vulnerable and when breakdowns happen mentally, which was my mother's case. So I learned I had to be strong as well within that. And I think 
I really honour my mother in that way um, for raising me for who I am today. Yeah. Mm. <coughs> but your mother, I mean, was your mother a hippie? Is that, uh, is that, no, is that a thing? No, she wasn't. Like, people have described her like she was a bit of an alternative hippie and some of her choices seem hippie. She ended up living, you know, on the north coast and sort of north of Byron Bay and obviously there's a whole association around alternate culture and sort of dropout zones for that. But she was, like, any, like all of us probably in the room, she was a, a complicated mix of many things. She was very bright. She was an academic. Um, she was a scientist. She sought alternatives to medicine for many, for many reasons. Um, and I speak about it in the book. A lot of her reasons were fear-based. Um, but she also just sought difference. She sought alternatives in many ways. So in science, in CSIRO work, wanting to see a way through um, genetically modified crops and the stalemate coming into Australia to, you know, adoption issues. She was, ado she was an unsuccessful adoption and she had a lot of what I'd call a primal wound around that. And so um, she was a complicated mix. She was alternative, but she was also straight in some ways. So it's hard to put her as a straight hippie. So but she didn't shave her legs, that kind of thing. <laughs> Ever. So when she, um, you know, when she chose yeah. not to go down the Western medicine yes. kind of path and yeah. then died, and then mm. 14 years later, you... Four. Oh, I thought, sorry, okay. Yes, yeah, so mum died, and four years later I was diagnosed. Okay, yeah. so, you know, when, so when that happened, yeah. was, I mean, was it hard for you to choose to go with Western medicine because she hadn't? Was that kind of a yes. betrayal of her in some ways? Or? No, yeah, I mean, a really good question because, uh, as you've just picked up, I was my mother's daughter, but I was also, as I said, sort of trained to think and to observe. And so I saw my mother, um, unfortunately for her alternative therapies didn't work and she died um, you know, from breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, they went everywhere. Um, I, my response was to flip and do the opposite. So I went belt and braces, you know, conventional medicine. Because I, I knew her and I knew her choices, I knew her reasoning for her choices. And so I decided to do the opposite. And I was also, I was, I was different to my mother. I had, uh, you know, a different strength and a different perspective from her too. Yeah. yeah. And and did that kind of, even when the the treatment started mm. and you suddenly found yourself faced with portacaths yeah. and all the treatment, did you did you feel like that you could you've made the right decision? You were, you never you never kind of doubted that process. Yeah. No, I've never doubted for a minute. Um, it was a very clear decision. It's like you know some of those light bulb memories we, uh, we have or flash experience, you know the direction you have to take. And when I was diagnosed, um, it was very loaded. I was my mother's full-time carer. I was living overseas. I came back to care for her for one year, and I was her body care. I did everything. Um, and I literally sat with her and watched her die. And so having seen that experience of a decaying body in a beautiful 56-year-old woman was a lesson. Um, and also seeing what didn't work. And so it was quite easy. The decision came easily, and it was very strong of, I'm not doing what mum did. I'm going the opposite. I'm doing the research myself. I trusted mum's choices. I didn't challenge them because I was a good girl, you know. And I went into the research. I went on clinical trials. I, I Basically, I did build embraces. So I removed every female organ apart from my brain, basically. So you think the female brain is slightly different from the male one? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Well, everyone just wants one. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting. I've yeah. mentioned the portacath just yes. there. Is that it's wonderful the way that when you get ill, you suddenly yes. become an aficionado of all this, of yes. this, all these words that you never, you'd hope never to encounter in your I life. Know. You can speak them; they yeah. just roll off your tongue. As well, if it, beca it becomes your world. You know, I was, I was, I was going to go down there and say it before. So when I was diagnosed, another loaded issue was that I was caring for a, a nine and a half half month old boy, my first child, my only child, who was very high need. So he was in and out of hospital with nasogastric tubes. I was feeding him electronically via a pump 24 hours a day and some sometimes um, he couldn't he was vomiting so much we had to push it transpyloric, which means it goes past his stomach into his gut. And so I was dealing with extreme physical health to literally keep my son alive. And so the decision around what treatment I had was easy because it came from mummy first, which was that I have to do anything, anything in the world to remain alive for my son. And so mum's choices were, I was 21 when mum was diagnosed, um, I was an adult who could look after myself and I guess she might have had maybe a freer choice, if that's the word, whereas for me at the time I had a, a newborn baby who needed me um, desperately and so I did whatever it took to remain alive for him. Yeah. And it's the easiest decision I've ever made in my life. Yeah. Mm. And look, just uh, this is kind of a bit off the sure. side, but I'm just curious yeah. to know, having gone that way, how, mm. do you have anything, any opinion about it? There's so many different mod modalities yes. other than Western medicine for yeah. approaching cancer. Do you have any kind of opinions about that? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I do. I, I, I guess everyone looks at improving their health. Sometimes call it people call it the terrain, your body. Um, so I keep really fit, I eat really well, I don't have, um, you know, hot chips, I, all the sort of basic stuff. You don't have hot chips? No, no, no hot What's chips, life, life worth living without hot chips? <laughs> totally. Um, well, there's a story in my book about hot chips, and so I will never eat them again. I had them when I was on chemotherapy, and chemotherapy have very fast, active destroying of cells, so my body couldn't absorb fat, so I had some chips, because I was thinking I was thinking I was okay, and my stomach went, and it all came out. It went under the Brisbane sewerage system, so there's no way I will eat chips ever again. So it was like an easy cleanser, that one, for me. But, yeah, look, so I look after myself health-wise. I do look um, at, you know, at vitamins and other ways around that. I get really good people around me who aren't maybe traditional um, physiotherapists, but they have a background, so I I'm open to alternatives, absolutely, as long as they support my conventional treatments. Yeah. They're not sort of one or the other for me. Yeah. 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 Sure. Now, look, would you like to read just yeah. a short, just, just sure. to give people a flavour of, yeah. of your writing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'll just read the prologue, which is like a page and a half. That's fantastic. Perfect. My mother's breast cancer was diagnosed when she was 45 and I was 21, an unwelcome third character in a story that until then had been ours. Just the two of us, friends and confidants, two moons circling each other. We shed everything. From that day onwards, my adult life was shadowed by the disease. It emerged every two to three years. Mum conceded to surgery, but not to the chemicals. She sought solace in alternative therapies, vitamin C infusions, a German non-chemical chemotherapy, psychic surgery, and psychological work. They didn't save her, but my mother's death saved me. Four years after I buried her, my mother's cancer reared up in my own body. The minutiae of her experience, doctors' waiting rooms, hospital stays, waking up after general anaesthetic with her breast off and a purple slash, the weighted realisation that her doctorate would never get submitted. 
the reckoning of a life clawed deep into my own cells. Yes, I thought then we did share everything, except for this. By then I had a child of my own and I refused to share my mother's choices. Instead, they galvanized me. I would fight for life with every piece of medical ammunition available, chemical, surgical, atomic. In the end, I had every female organ removed that could generate cancer, apart from my brain. I'm standing still. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the reasons that this book is, is so special is that you Thanks. feel so comfortable talking about your body as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Was that hard for you, or did that come naturally? Um, I think it's... So, you know, the first part of um, getting diagnosed with breast cancer, I had big curly hair and I realised that was a huge part of my sense of myself as a feminine woman and I had to cut that off literally and then it fell out. And so that was the beginning of sort of a radicalisation process of not identifying my sexuality or myself as a woman of my body and as women I believe most of us have had that. We have been judged on how we look and how we operate in the world as, as females. And so when I had all of that ripped out, cut out from my choice. I was no longer, I was gendered, but it was a false gendered. And, and so I had to shift how I thought about myself. And part of that was me becoming a CanSpeak uh, representative. Part of me was writing this book and then beginning to have those conversations with people and to choose to be very open, whether it's uncomfortable or a bit embarrassing. I decided that I needed to write the book or speak the truth or speak what it was that I felt, especially for women who are 34, because when I was going through treatments, no doctor talked about what happened to your vagina as the woman when you, when you have all your estrogen sucked out. Um, you know, and I started having these conversations with women who were in their 70s and 80s, and I felt a kinship with much older women. And what I realised in being honest about my experience is that I was opening up the chance for other women to connect with me and to be honest about what's happening for them. Whether they've had cancer or not, a lot of older women have come up and spoken to me about what it's like for them once they've gone through menopause and their bodies don't respond as they want sexually or, or normally, or we're talking about hot flushes before, etc. And so it's really, I, I sort of, I didn't depersonalise in the psychological sense, but I made a very conscious decision just to use it as a platform just to be deeply honest about women's bodies um, and around sexuality. Mm. Mm. And, I mean, you weren't a writer before you started this. This is, this is was, a book yeah. that, I mean, and yet here you are, you've produced this book. Yeah. Which, does, are you now going to write more books? Are you, are you... I am. So I was, I was, I guess, a budding writer. I have written another book before, but it wasn't um, non-fiction. It was fictional fantasy, and it hasn't been picked up. It's sort of on the shelf. That's fine. Um, so I did a master's, and that's how I met Christina Olsen many moons ago. But yes, I am writing. It's not a non-fiction. It's a YA. Um, so I'm writing something else now. And it's definitely my... It's, it's me. It's who I am. It's like I have all my ducks lined up when I'm writing, and I'm in the writing world. It's... Yes, who I am. Mm. That's great. And just one last question about, about yes. Celso, your son. Yes. H how old is he now? So my son is 10 now. Yeah, goes, is in year four in the local state school. He goes with integration. My son is nonverbal autistic. Um, he was diagnosed at three and a half eventually. At the time, we, he was given, we, you know, we went through the whole thing with, my son had a collection of 
um, medical needs. So he has probably like a genetic disorder, but we couldn't find out what it was. But his main sort of way is autism. So he's, he's non-verbal autistic, yeah. And communicates through a pad, but he's trying to speak now. God love him. He eats. He didn't eat for three and a half years. No water went into his mouth, no food. Um, I fed him via a, um, a milk that I had made in in the Netherlands and shipped up from Sydney because of his severe um, gastro reflux disease. So he's come a long way. I also went to America and trained in a play therapy in the Autism Treatment Centre of America and, and trained a group of, of um, OT and, and psych students to do this play-based therapy with him. And we did that intensively for two and a half years and he went from severely autistic to sort of functioning. And yeah, he's able to be mainstream school now. So he's, he's a gem, he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Dietrich, thank Thanks you so much. much. Yes.